The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Sequel Quest, episode 114. A sequel to the legendarily terrible Ed Wood classic, Plan 9, from Outer Space. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. My friends, we are all interested in the future of podcasts. For that is what you and I are going to be listening to for the rest of our lives. We are giving you all of our pitches for a sequel to Plan 9 from Outer Space, based only on the secret testimonies of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. But my friends, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Can your heart stand the shocking facts about the hosts of the Sequel Quest podcast? He's interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why he is here. Speak now, Jeff. So I speak, or thus I... Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Currently emerging from the grave, ready to punish the guilty and reward the innocent, speak Jeremy. I have spoken. And reminding you that last night I saw a flying object that couldn't have possibly been from this planet, but I can't talk about it. I'm muzzled by army brass. I can't even imagine I saw the thing. I'm Adam. And finally, reminding us that future events like these will affect us in the future. <laughs> from the Mystery Movie Night, Hellbent for Letterbox, and Nerd Lunch, Fourth Chair Army Invasion Podcast, it's Michael May! <laughs> hey, hey, I hold my laughter into that whole thing. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. We are excited to have you on board for this adventure. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and an adventure it is. Yeah, this is actually, as uh, as Michael approached us to let us know he'd be interested in being a guest on the program, gave us a whole list of movies. There was a lot of potential there for many different decades. And for some reason, as a group, we came to the conclusion that Plan 9 from Outer Space was going to be the best choice for our discussion tonight. For some reason. That'll learn ya. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I would like to point out the reason it's for some reason is because Adam was not the one in favor of it, but we outvoted. Can you believe it? I did not strong arm my co-hosts into this. But this is a film of infamy. For those who need a quick catch-up here, Edward D. Wood Jr. wrote and directed a handful of films in the 50s that went on to a certain sort of acclaim for their <laughs> lack of quality, I guess is how you would put it. Right. You know, initially he wrote and starred in Glenn or Glenda, a film about cross-dressing. Has anybody watched this? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, 1953. And would you really call it a film, Michael? How would you describe this? (laughs) I don't think it kind of wants to be a documentary. An educational (laughs) film, like, yeah. Yeah. Bella the ghosty pulling the string for some reason. Pull <laughs> oh, the strings. Yeah, talking about dragons and eating yeah. snails. I don't yeah. get it. Uh, the devil appears at yeah. some point. 
But what I will say about Glider Glenda is it was incredibly forward thinking for today's society, being that Ed Ed Wood himself was cross-dresser at that time, a transvestite as he identified, and, and that was the whole shock value of the film. And yet, because he starred in it, and he wrote it, and it was personal to him, it was something he had in, as a part of his life, like, he really is presenting it like, understand this. It wasn't schlock, necessarily. <laughs> it was poorly made, but it was... <laughs> but it had a message that you could be like, oh, okay, I can see this. Now, not at the time, though. At the time, it's like, can you believe it? Now, the next year, in 1954, he went on to write a film called Jailbait, which isn't as lurid as it sounds. Really? It's just a small town gangster film. Like, that's basically what it is. You know, any type of exploitation film that would have come out with that title would have had very different content. But he is mainly known for three films, first of which is Bride of the Monster, also featuring and mainly starring an aging Bela Lugosi. That was in 1955. Have we seen Bride of the Monster, gentlemen? Absolutely. No? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Bela Lugosi and an amazing octopus. Yes. Oh, it's the octopus one. Okay. I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar. I mean, it's one of those films, I dare say it's his most coherent film. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I mean, it, it has a straightforward narrative. You know what's going on. And yes, there's plenty of stock footage being used. But at the same time, <laughs> I mean, Bela Lugosi has a full performance in this. You know, he, he actually has a, a script that he's performing, not just appearing for two seconds with a cloak. <laughs> so that's very good. And it, of course, also features Tor Johnson, wrestler is lobo so that film you know obviously had a lot going for it. there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff on that movie which is very interesting we don't have time to get into all of it but let's just say that edward you know he was a, a scrappy guy and he, he pulled it together by hook or by crook he did what he had to do which was certainly the case with plan nine from outer space we will get to it in more detail but needless to say bel lugosi appears in this film posthumously although he is not a main character because he was dead uh, by the time that film came out. But also, unknown to many people who think the Ed Wood train starts and stops with Plan 9, there was a third film in what many people call the Kelton Trilogy, because it remained unreleased until 1984, although it was filmed in 1961. This is Night of the Ghouls. Anybody? Night of the Ghouls. I have not seen that one. Okay. Yeah, so this one, very interesting. It's on YouTube if you want to go check it out. Just to catch you up, involves a gangster who poses as like a swami medium. He's got like the headdress and everything. And he is resurrecting ghosts that are these women. And one of them is a fake that works with him. The other is a real ghost. And people are dying. And then there's characters from Bride of the Monster and Plan 9 from Outer Space in that film really yes and the main one of them is in Officer Kelton, played by Paul Marco. So, in fact, his three most popular films, well, two most popular and the one (laughs) that eventually was released, share a cinematic universe. So, I mean, this predates the Marvel Cinematic Universe by like 50 years. Edward was there. Yeah, but Officer Kelton is the only person with a sense of humor in these movies. He's like this fun, cowardly, whiny goofball. But he is the one who ties the universe together, because there's a line he says in Plan 9 where he's like, well, why do I always get hooked up with these spook details? Monsters, (laughs) graves, bodies. (laughs) 
And he does the same thing in Night of the Ghouls, but then he adds like aliens and all this stuff. So it's just like that's his thing. He's just always pulled into these situations. He's like the Fox Mulder. Yes. Nice. But so I have to ask then, Michael, obviously this was your suggestion. Tell us a little bit about your history with Ed Wood, your opinion of Plan 9. Where, where do you fall on, on this creative genius? <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting way of putting it. Well, it starts with the Tim Burton movie. I was a big Tim Burton fan when that movie came out and still enjoy Tim Burton to somewhat to some degree but I was a huge Johnny Depp fan I think that was the real draw for me and I've kind of fallen off that bandwagon a little bit too but at the time that it was like a lot of great tastes coming together and I just I love that movie and I love just kind of the passion that Ed Wood has in it and he's got just these dreams of being this writer director producer and I love like there's a, a scene with him and um I think it's Vincent D'Onofrio playing Orson Welles and knowing that like that was kind of what Edward was like trying to achieve was he wanted to be basically Orson Welles and in, in that movie they cover these three films Glenn or Glinda Bread of the Atom and Plan 9 from Outer Space and so I wanted to go back and, and watch the actual versions of those and I pretty much agree with all of your commentary on all of them I think Bride of the Atom is kind of the most cohesive accessible one glenn or glenda is completely bonkers in a really entertaining <laughs> so bad it's good way and then plan nine from outer space is like almost so bad it's good but then it kind of goes back around the bad again so I, I i wish that i liked plan nine from outer space more but there are just these kind of iconic elements about it that uh, that make it rewatchable for me even though it's not a good story it's not a good it's not well crafted in any way but i think it there's some entertainment value there it's interesting too because you know if if you can't quite get through plan nine or bride of the monster bride of the atom original title and great robbers from outer space original title of plan nine so many changes but they have also been featured in Mystery Science Theater 3000 based projects, right. you know, so Bride of the Monster and also an Edward film he penned called The Sinister Urge, our classic MST3K episodes, and Rift Tracks has covered Plan 9 from Outer Space, so, you know, it's it was bound to happen, obviously, but <laughs> if you need a little extra help to get through the ineptitude, it is there. <laughs> Jeff, I know you held, you know, very regular bad movie nights for quite a long time. I don't know if that's still continuing. Where does Ed Wood's oeuvre fall for you in that? Well, it's even more so than watching uh, a Mystery Science Theater. Because for me, it's like this movie, it's it's almost too easy for them to riff on. Because it's just like, it spoofs, it's, I mean, it doesn't spoof itself intentionally. But for me, it, it was the, the Tim Burton movie, Ed Wood, that does shine so much light on the insanity that is this movie. And the fact that he could not care less about the details. And he's like, no one's going to notice that this like gravestone fell over. Or that this police officer always seems to motion to people with the barrel of his gun. <laughs> yes! He scratches his head with it at one point, And it's just anarchy. So for me, it's really interesting in watching bad movies is that I find that there are three main categories of bad movies. One that's like a swing and a miss, which is like like the Super Mario Brothers movie, where they were swinging for the fences because they thought they had it and they just completely whiffed and that's what you get. You get other ones like Troll 2 or like Birdemic, where it's like a passion project of a, of a very misguided person, where they really have like a thing that they want to convey and they just convey it really, really poorly. With this one, it's kind of that unique thing is that what makes it so great is that 
Edward legitimately thought that plot line, character motivation, like uh, set pieces, even like cohesive storyline, he didn't care about any of those things. We talked about Bella Lugosi. He literally threw in a clip that Bella filmed for a different movie or what he thought was going to be a different movie and inserted it and like tried to build the story around these random moments with Bella Lugosi. And oh, oh that, wait, wait, wait. So he basically just did what J.J. Abrams did with Carrie uh, Fisher. Well, except for this was like, yeah, I mean, the, to, to write the whole story around something that made no sense where, you know, again, an old man going to his wife's funeral in a zombie movie. Like, what? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Like you say, categorizing bad films, you really look at it and you say, well, this is like the grandfather of them all, most people consider, uh-huh. right? This is the, the one that has the most infamy that had its cult for, even like in the 80s is really where it exploded and got huge. I was watching this documentary that was made in the 80s where like they went and interviewed as many of the cast members as they could and all of Edward's ex-wives and everything. And people were writing <laughs> Plan 9 musicals back then. I mean, they were selling <laughs> merchandise. Like, it was it was getting to be, a, you know, a kitsch thing at that moment and that I feel like as, you know, the late 80s and the 90s, 2000s, like, other movies have taken its place. Like you mentioned, Troll 2 and Birdemic and The Room, all of those have kind of gained a little bit more notoriety where this one's just maybe a little bit more cute. <laughs> but, Jeremy, I know you watched it for the first time in preparation for the show how did you come out the other end of watching plan nine from outer space i'm still lost (laughs) Uh, i don't know what i watched i wasn't sure if it was like a terrible snl skit gone wrong or what yeah just uh bewildered (laughs) that's the right response i think that's what everybody expects michael and jeff you said you found out about the film because of tim burton's ed wood i certainly had heard of that movie but i didn't ever see it because i was just like well it's not a superhero movie it's not a a weird guy in a castle with scissor hands movie it was just for me i i just kind of ignored it and i actually first saw plan nine from outer space at a rift tracks live event in a theater so i got to actually go and experience it with a bunch of people who i'm sure knew much more about it than i did but there was a great riff in there where you know there's that scene where the army general is just looking to the sky in like a blank background with binoculars and they keep cutting in all this stock footage of army firing missiles and things and he's looking up there and he just references the wizard of oz they're saying like surrender dorothy what the hell (laughs) 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 anyway so that was pretty fun and then i sought out ed wood and i what i realized is i really feel a kinship with ed wood in that Jeff can attest to this and we've mentioned it over the course of the show here and there that I too felt the itch to be a filmmaker about 10 years ago on no budget and through sheer force of will and enthusiasm convinced my friends and family to help me get it done and I created a trilogy of shared universe films that included Rake Man the Midnight Gardener based on a concept created by Jeff then The Adventures of Poncho Paulo and finally Poncho Paulo 2 The Curse of Rake Man where the two characters <laughs> <laughs> battle each other <laughs> it was just a mashup film but like just that idea of getting your friends together or getting people that are like-minded and you don't have anything to offer and you stroke their ego a little bit i couldn't think of anybody else but you i wrote this just for you and you bring them in and they're there from 9 p.m till 6 a.m the next morning shooting their scenes because they got to go to work you know but they're getting it done they're in on the dream <laughs> i certainly understand where ed's coming from but 
but also what I realized kind of in retrospect is I'm a fan of the punk band The Misfits and one of their better songs is called Vampira who's also featured in this film only after much bother from Ed Wood himself but they actually like set up a meeting with her in 1982 so like years years after all this but they were such big fans from this movie and and knowing of her history as well but this is a, a question I have for you guys then just on the film itself and we, we were talking about earlier the idea of how bad a bad film is. But from a critical point of view, how bad is it? <laughs> I mean, like, it, mm. when you really look at it, even just looking over, like, the history of Mystery Science Theater, I oh, feel like they've God. showed us there are much worse films. I mean, Manos, The Hands of Fate is oddly fascinating, but from a technical side, it's a poorly made film all around. Whereas Ed Wood at least has a style, he keeps the camera in focus... He's just not great at editing. Nothing goes unused. And stock footage and body doubles, that's all very obvious. But to me, I just say the most egregious error, if you're going to throw stones at Ed Wood, is in the writing. The dialogue so often has characters just repeating the same point twice, yeah. seemingly to, you know, just fill out the script pages. There's like Tana. She's like, mad. Is it mad that you destroy other people to save yourselves? You have done this. Is it mad that one country must destroy another <laughs> to save themselves? You have also done this. Huh? Or, you know, we're like, this is the most fantastic story I've ever heard. And every word of it's true, too. That's the fantastic part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, it, it just feels like it's the perfect storm. Where it's like, to say you can nitpick one thing, I don't think you can. I think literally everything about it. Like, I, I, I don't know that I would agree. Yes, okay, like, the, the camera is in focus, but, like, there's plenty of shots that are wrong from a technical perspective. It's kind of the classic, like, oh, there's a paper plate on a string that's spinning around. That must be a flying saucer. All of that is really bad. The performances are horrendous. I mean... How much could you do with that dialogue? I don't know, but they made it so much worse. And and I mean, they even said, what was it? Because the whole story is, right, is that he got funding for this movie from a, was it a Baptist church? Yeah. It was a, it was a church that wanted to make the movie about John the Apostle. And to raise money, he said, you know what people love? Sci-fi movies. If we make a sci-fi movie... Then you can make enough money to make your big time movie about the Apostle John. And so, like, I think the main character is their choir director. And he's horrible. Like, all of the dialogue is bad. The story is impossible to follow. Where, what is it, humans are going to develop Solaronite. So, therefore, <laughs> we need to destroy them by reanimating their dead, which are going to be zombies, which we'll call ghouls. But there's a vampire in there. But don't pay attention to that. And then we're going to kidnap the... It's, it's anarchy. That makes no sense. And it's and difficult. It's impossible to follow. Yeah, it's just a train wreck. Well, and I, I do have one point that I'll challenge you on, Jeff, is I don't know if you've seen This Island Earth or Mystery Science Theater, the sure. movie, but I say that the lead in Plan 9 from Outer Space is on par with Cal from This Island Earth. Like, he's just <laughs> as like, I am just here and I'm a good looking guy with a big jaw from the 50s. What about you, Michael? Is it the worst film ever made? No, you've, you've named some other ones that were pretty, I would, I would call them worse. Like, I enjoy the plot of this, such as it is. I mean, this, the, the concept of aliens coming down and animating the dead to cause terror, I think it's a solid basis for a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as crappy as the special effects are, like, you know, I find them really charming, the, the plates on the strings and just lighting them on fire. And Vampira and Tor Johnson and fake Bela Lugosi 
walking around the graveyard is ridiculous but fun and uh, you know the shifts in scenes like one scene is on a, a stage and so it's completely black and then the next shot supposedly at the same location is on location and they're shooting you're shooting day for night and uh so you know it's like it's daytime in one shot and then nighttime in the next shot and daytime yeah. in the next shot but i just i find that endearing in this like the parts that bother me are like a lot of the dialogue that you were talking about like the lieutenant says at one point like one thing's for sure inspector clay is dead murdered and somebody's responsible (laughs) that stuff is crazy but like the guy you know pointing everybody with his gun i think that's hilarious (laughs) so i do find a lot of entertainment in it whereas there are other bad movies where i'm not having a good time with them and this Mm -hmm. one i do at least have a good time that's a good point is that and and you kind of mentioned this earlier michael is that there can be a difference between a bad movie i don't think there's such a thing as it it's so bad that it's good it mm-hmm. can be so bad that it's fun whereas there yeah, are some yeah. movies like for me like battlefield earth is just so bad that it's painful like i right. can't until the last 15 minutes i can't even sit through the rest of it because it's just it's just painful whereas you're right this one is so bad that i'm laughing the whole time and that's that's enjoyable yeah, it's redeemed by the entertainment value, however unintentional. And unintentional, yeah, good point. But, Jeremy, I have to ask you, regarding the aliens in this film, how did you feel about those invaders and the machinations that they had going on? What, what was your take? Were you, were you threatened by them in any way? No, they were the weakest alien invaders that were supposed to be threatening that I've ever come across. They seem like a bunch of people from a country club. They're just like, you're stupid, <laughs> stupid! You know, just a bunch of, like, spoiled rich guys, you know, just kind of talking about how they've got it all figured out. We're going to stop those earthlings. Then you use bombs and you split the atom and you'll annihilate us all. It should have cast Ted Knight. Oh, yeah. A young Ted Knight would have been great. So here's what I have to tell you guys, though. This is really interesting. So there was an actual remake of this film in 2015 called Plan 9, but it is set in Nilbog. Anybody want to identify that town? Wow. Goblin spelled backwards. (laughs) That is right. From Troll 2. So it's so weird. Like, it has nothing to do with, like, goblins don't show up. There's nothing like that in it, but they just, I guess, as a reference and in-joke, but it has all the same characters names it has the same basic plot line but it's gory and it's basically saying if you had a little bit more of a budget and you were self-aware this is what plan nine from outer space could be that is on uh, amazon prime you could check it out but tonight you know we're here to propose a sequel to the original film not a remake and yet there was a sequel in the form of a comic book in 1991 there was an independent publishing company called Eternity, and they had produced a Plan 9 from Outer Space adaptation, and then they made Plan 9 from Outer Space 30 years later, which told the story of Jeff and Paula Trent's daughter becoming a reporter who's contacted by some rebels from the home planet of Eros and Tana from the first film that want to save the Earth from Plan 10, which basically involves synthetic doubles of Earth's most powerful leaders passing legislation and selling products that ruin the environment so our world is destroyed and scientists can never discover the solar night formula and explode sunlight and the universe. Wow. I hope that didn't take away anybody's pitch tonight. But... <laughs> yeah, I'm scrapping my pitch. Let's just make that movie. Yeah. <laughs> they attempted to give us a sequel at that point, and I believe actually there was one more, which I couldn't find many details on, but it took place 50 years later. So it was a more recent uh, sequel attempt. 
Well, I did see there was an independent film called Plan 10 from Outer Space, but it was actually unrelated. They just stole the name, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, do what you gotta do to get butts in seats. <laughs> or videos, however they do it, downloads these days with the kids and their computing devices. Well, Michael, why don't you kick us off? Oh my gosh, okay, so buckle in, this, is, this might take a little while, but before I get into the plot, like the big theme I wanted to tackle in this whole thing is redemption. I think it's a word that you used a couple of times, Adam. And, and like, can we redeem this absolutely horrible movie? And so my pitch is to make a film that's both a sequel and a remake, kind of like uh, the 2011 version of The Thing. So we're not just trying to redeem Ed Wood's movie, but the aliens in our movie are also going to be trying to redeem their original plan. Like, can this plan work if the people in charge of it aren't complete morons? <laughs> and so my first thought was to try to stay as close to Ed Wood's way of filmmaking as possible. And I was thinking, okay, maybe this would make a cool like Blumhouse production, like a really low-budget horror movie, but super scary. But then I realized that redeeming the story of Plan 9 doesn't mean we also have to redeem the way it was made. So like we can keep the same basic story, but actually throw a lot of money and talent at it. And that would make a better movie. It also was way more fun for me to imagine and plan out. So this is my big budget summer blockbuster version of Plan 10. So the original movie still exists in, in this universe. It came out in 1959. So this sequel slash remake is coming out 61 years later. So it opens, we meet Rachel Trent, and uh, I'm going to have her played by Tessa Thompson. And she lives in Washington, D.C., and she is the lead scientist on a research team working with electromagnetic radiation. And she has discovered a method of using EMR to interact with atoms in a way that causes them to explode. So she's focusing on ways of harnessing this power for positive, useful purposes, but she's also very aware and extremely nervous about the military implications for it. So uh, we meet her, and then we also meet her husband, Jack, who is played by Chris Hemsworth because I really want Tessa Thompson and, Jack and Chris Hemsworth to be the next like Tracy and Hepburn or <laughs> Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan or something. They already have their men in black turn and get them yes. this one now. All right. Yes. yes. So Jack is an Air Force pilot. He's stationed at Andrews Air Force Base outside of D.C. And while on maneuvers, Jack and his team encounter a UFO that speeds off out of sight faster than they can track it. We follow the UFO to where it lands in the suburbs of Maryland near a large cemetery. And there's a funeral just wrapping up, having interred the body of an old man in, a, in an above-ground crypt. And one of the mourners is the old man's granddaughter. Uh, her name is Tara Moore, and she is going to be played by Margot Robbie. And she is accompanied at the funeral by the local sheriff, whose name is Duke Johnson, and he is played by Dave Bautista. And we learned that uh, Tara is actually a deputy sheriff herself. So these guys are kind of like partners. Cut back to Jack. He lands at Air Andrews and he's de debriefed by his colonel, uh, Ed Thomas, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who declares the UFO sighting classified and forbids Jack from talking to anyone about it. Jack goes home. It arrives around the same time as Rachel. And over dinner, Rachel's complaining about her job, kind of worrying over the military implications of her research. And even though Jack is military, he's sympathetic. He's supportive of her. But he does not tell her about the UFO sighting, even though it's clearly bothering him. That night, Sheriff Johnson and Deputy Moore are on patrol and get a call about a death at the cemetery. A groundskeeper has been brutally murdered and torn apart as if by a wild animal. And Sheriff Johnson goes to investigate the crime scene while Deputy Moore goes to the cemetery office to interview the person who found the body. And she wraps up the interview and goes out to find Johnson because he's not responding to his radio. So she goes out into the cemetery and she is attacked and killed by the undead corpse of her grandfather, who is played by a CG Bela Lugosi. So we are doing absolutely, 
<laughs> what JJ did with Leia. Cut to Sheriff Johnson. He's walking around the cemetery trying to get his wrist, his radio to work. It's, it seems to be intact, but he can't get anybody on it due to some kind of interference. And uh, he's been following a trail leading away from the murdered groundskeeper, but it's kind of led him to a dead end. So he decides to go back to the cemetery office, try to find his deputy. She's not there in the office, but the cemetery director is kind of distracted, though, because there's this TV report uh, of UFOs appearing all over the world. We cut back to Rachel and Jack. They are watching a similar news report, and Jack comes clean about his sighting earlier that day. He explains that he was told not to talk about it, but the cat's out of the bag now, so he, he kind of tells uh, Rachel everything he knows. He gets the impression that his commander knew more about the UFOs than he was telling, and Rachel starts to suspect a cover-up, but Jack isn't sure it really is that serious. Um, but during the conversation, we learn that Jack's grandparents went through something similar in the late 50s, and uh, we're not going to spell it out, but that was Jeff and Paula Trent from the first movie. Cut to Andrews Air Force Base, where Colonel Thomas is meeting some other top brass, and we learn that there is, in fact, a government cover-up. In fact, the UFOs have been trying to communicate with the government, but orders are not to respond. Then we cut to a flying saucer landing in the forest near the cemetery, and inside there are two human-looking aliens receiving a communication from their commander via hologram. The two aliens in the saucer are named Philia and Enawa. They are played respectively by Lucy Liu and Ming-Na Wen, and their commander is named Rula, and she is played by Michelle Yeoh. Rula is addressing the alien invasion all across Earth. She's frustrated that Earth's governments are again unresponsive to aliens' attempts to contact them. This is the second time this has happened, the first being 60 Earth years earlier. Now that humanity is on the brink of developing Solaronite, the alien's name for what Rachel Trent is researching, the aliens have to again try to convince Earth to abandon their inquiry into the use of this EMR. Once again, the aliens will attempt to gain humanity's attention by resurrecting the dead until the humans agree to talk. The aliens' culture is primarily peaceful. They haven't, they've outlawed destructive weapons, so the only makeshift makeshift weapon they have is their resurrection technology that works differently on human biology than it does on alien. Uh, so it actually will raise an alien back to sentient life, but humans unfortunately become mindless husks of their former selves. And a quick test of the technology conducted by Philia and Enawa in Maryland has revealed that it still has this effect. I'm kind of plant some seeds here about like why the aliens look like humans. We're not going to fully answer this question unless I guess we come back and do a Plan 11. But 60 years ago, a localized version of the plan known as Plan 9 failed due to the incompetence of the team that carried it out. This time, the plan is going global, and it is known as Plan 10. The tone of all this conversation, I want the aliens to kind of be benevolent but desperate like i don't want them to be villains like that was a problem with the first movie is like these aliens were all over the place they kind of said they were benevolent but they were threatening and they were just they were, you, you kind of had a hard time getting a handle on them like i want the villains to be they have good intentions but they're just they're completely at their wits end about what to do about this situation so and they just can't think of any other way to get the attention of earth's governments and maybe we insert like some kind of subplot about you know they, maybe they tried to use the internet to reach Earth's people directly but nobody believes them and um uh, I don't know. We could we could workshop that. But anyway, Philia and Anawa prepare to raise all the bodies in the cemetery. And uh, as they're doing that, Jack is recalled uh, to Andrews to prepare for war in case the saucers attack. So he's driving away. Um, and as we see him drive away, we learn that his house borders the cemetery. And we see undead Bella Lugosi leaving the cemetery and entering Jack and Rachel's neighborhood. Uh, he's headed toward their house with Rachel now inside by herself. 
so Bella breaks into the house. He attacks Rachel, and he's not a lumbering zombie. He's actually pretty fast. And Rachel escapes, but Bella chases her outside. She runs to the neighbor's house and finds the door open, but the lights are out. She calls for help. There's no answer. And as Bella comes in the front door, Rachel runs upstairs and straight into the arms of undead Deputy Moore, who has murdered the neighbor family. Jack arrives at Andrews Air Force Base, where all the planes are scrambling to get into the air and defend Washington from the saucers there. And all over the rest of the world, other countries' air forces are doing the same thing. Back to Rachel, she escapes the undead deputy and Bela Lugosi. She makes it out into the street and runs into Sheriff Johnson, who is driving back to the sheriff's office to check in. Uh, Neither his personal radio nor his car radio were working in the cemetery. Rachel tells Johnson what's going on. He's forced to believe her when the two undead bodies come out of the house and attack. Johnson shoots Moore and Grandpa, but the bullets have no effect. Rachel asks him why he's not calling for backup, and he tells her the radios don't work. And then right at that moment, one of the other deputies calls on the radio, which is far enough away from the saucer now not to be interfered with. And though the sheriff doesn't yet realize what's causing the interference. So he screams for backup just as Rachel also screams, because what, and then we see what she's saying, which is undead bodies are climbing out of the tombs and crypts and moving forward towards the neighborhood. So the sheriff and Rachel get into his car. They take off trying to draw the horde away from the neighborhood. Some of the zombies do follow them. But as Johnson drives, he and Rachel talk about what's going on, how this all started in the cemetery, how Johnson's radio wouldn't work there. And Rachel kind of puts together that whatever's causing this must be located in or near the cemetery, probably not too far from the grandfather's crypt. Johnson realizes that the crypt is on the edge of the cemetery near the woods, and he even knows of a hollow in the woods close by, so they decide to drive around the cemetery to the woods to investigate. They get there, and everything is quiet except for this faint hum off in the trees, so they go and they investigate, they find the saucer, and Philia and Anawa see them coming, they leave the ship to beat them, and they explain what's going on, that they're desperate to stop the development of the Solaronite. And once they explain what that is, Rachel will understand that it's what she's been working on, and she's inclined to cooperate, but... Johnson is furious about the zombies and all the people that are being killed right that very minute. So he holds Philia and Anawa at gunpoint, makes them take him and Rachel aboard the saucer to stop the zombie invasion. Philia and Anawa don't have guns, but they are magnificent at unarmed combat. They easily disarm Johnson and take him and Rachel prisoner and have them enter the saucer. Rachel reveals to Philia and Anawa that she's the one who's developing the Solaronite technology, and she promises to quit and destroy all of her research if Philia and Anawa call off the attack. Philia and Anawa agree, but they say it won't be easy. Theirs is just one part of a global attack. They can save the people of this area, but they'll have to try to convince Rula to stop the global attack. So they contact Rula. She says that she'll call off the attack only once the research is destroyed and she has assurances that Earth's governments will talk to her. So Rachel immediately agrees to destroying the research, but says it'll take more time to get someone to listen about meeting the aliens. But Rachel promises that she'll work diligently to make that happen. And that's good enough for Rula, but the research has to be destroyed before she'll call off the attack. And then the rest of the movie is Rachel and Duke Johnson and the two aliens breaking into Rachel's lab to destroy her research and there's plenty of guards and the only weapons are Johnson's guns and Philly and Anawa's fists and Rachel's wits and it's all very exciting and during all this we'll kind of keep cutting to the dogfight between Jack's team and the flying saucers very tense people die but Jack will come out of that okay and then once the research is destroyed Philly and Anawa contact Rula she calls off the zombies but she warns that the attacks will resume if Earth's governments fail to respond in two days Rachel and the sheriff aren't happy with all the deaths from the attack, but they go quietly when Philia and Anawa return them to the sheriff's car. Rachel particularly mourns the circumstances around her meeting Philia and Anawa, knowing that she could have learned so much from them, and they also wish that they could have met her under different circumstances. And finally, the saucer takes off as Rachel and Johnson walk to the car. We see the saucer rise into the sky, and as it rises, we see the empty graves of the cemetery and the devastation of the neighborhood and the neighboring town, and zombies are falling in the street and lie dead next to the innocent people that they've killed. So Earth has been horribly hurt, but at least it will survive to try to correct 
correct its mistakes. They tampered in God's domain. (laughs) That's pretty tense. It's going to be very popular on the international market. I can tell you right now, your casting choices is going to bring in a lot of money. (laughs) All right. Well, let me jump in here then, because while you have given us a modern day soft reboot, reimagining, bringing it all back together, I decided to imagine a what if scenario. What if Ed Wood was able to scrape together together just a little bit more money one last time after night of the ghouls and was able to make a final film feeling that he could have done plan nine just a little bit better and so he said let me bring back those characters people still want sci-fi we can make it happen i've got an ace up my sleeve (laughs) so i give you from 1963 genghis khan versus the space mummies So, uh, Eros from the last film was demoted for his failure with Plan 9 and exiled on Venus, but Tana refused to give up hope of stopping Earth from destroying the universe. Meanwhile on Earth, Officer Kelton is transferred to the Austin, Texas Police Department and been demoted to meter maid. Of course, that means he runs into a lot of Z-grade Hollywood actors in cowboy hats with bad Western accents. Tana has determined that the only way to prevent Earth from blowing up the universe is to conquer it by reanimating the dead of their home planet as an endless and compliant army of soldiers. The unnamed home planet is nonsensically filled with Egyptian architecture and their pyramids are filled with dead, bandaged, wrapped bodies. So then Tana zaps the pyramid and a line of mummies exit and board the spacecraft. So, back on Earth, Kelton meets a gal named Anne Gora played by the daughter of the bandage manufacturing ceo who financed the film (laughs) and she sweet talks kelton out of a parking ticket and then reveals that she works at a local history museum where genghis khan's crypt is on display as an exhibit for a month tor johnson plays the corpse of genghis khan with a furry hat and a fu manchu mustache but is otherwise dressed in his standard lobo outfit while visiting the museum to woo Anne, Kelton catches sight of a stray mummy from the spacecraft wandering the corridor. But nobody believes him! Tana unleashes her army on Austin, the hometown of President Lyndon Johnson, believing that if she takes the city hostage, the president will be forced to take this invasion seriously and agree to disband all scientific think tanks working on the solar night weapon. Mummies very slowly and awkwardly harass citizens of the city by shuffling through traffic, entering the ring of a rodeo during the bull riding competition, and interrupting a family barbecue by touching the grill and being set on fire. (laughs) But despite these bungling annoyances, the mummies also cause a few people to panic themselves into deadly situations like wandering into traffic and dying off screen with a disembodied scream. Still, instead of sending in the National Guard, the president's chief of staff calls it a publicity stunt and ignores the events. Kelton and Anne end up hostages of Tana where Kelton continues to badger the girl he's in love with with terrible poems and promises of a romantic life together. This gives Anne even more resolve to escape, which she does with reanimation equipment in hand. Arriving at the museum, Kelton and Anne decide to resurrect Genghis Khan, who after being attacked by the stray mummy in the museum, goes on a rampage, pummeling the other mummies to dust and saving the town. In an ironic twist, the residents of Austin find Genghis Khan to be the monster they most fear and shoot their savior to death in the street. Of course, we then get a closing monologue by Criswell about the mob mentality and good 
people driven to madness by their own misunderstandings as credits roll. Genghis Khan. I just imagine that Ed Wood saw John Wayne in The Conqueror, <laughs> and he was just like, yes, that's that. what people want. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, what do you got? Well, for once, I'm actually closer to you than I would expect, Adam, because I wow. decided if I'm going to pour into the comedy aspect with those, like, insert comedy here sort of moments. <laughs> So for me, I'm giving up on the name Plan 9. I think it's been tainted. So we're going to go with Grave Robbers from Outer Space 2, The Final Solution. <laughs> it's going to open with yet another brilliant intro by someone introducing themselves as the amazing Criswell. And have an intro that has nothing to do with the movie or anything else. But it's just going to be very <laughs> dramatic about death or whatever. And then we're going to show a clip, the final scene of Plan 9, of the saucer exploding. And then after the saucer explodes, then the camera pans down onto the made-up cityscape of really cheaply made houses. And we see that in the middle of the city, there's a farm for some reason. And so we zoom in on the farm, and then we see in a you know, clunky cut that on a a bunch of hay, there's Eros, and he's laying, having somehow survived the explosion of the saucer. Meanwhile, farmers Frank and Mabel Dean come out and uh, uh, rescue this poor soul who has no memory of who he is or what he's doing here. Um, and so they, of course, nurse him back to health and put him to work on the farm, give him overalls, and he's out working on the farm. <laughs> um, and as he's working in the field one day, time has no meaning here, so who knows how long it takes. Uh, at some point, he runs across, somehow there are bones of one of the previously animated zombies that are somehow in this field. And when he runs across the bone, all of his memories come back. He remembers who he is and what he's supposed to be doing here. So then in kind of like an E.T. sort of a thing, he, in the barn, without the knowledge of Frank and Mabel, he constructs a communication device to contact his uh, high commander leader person. So he builds it uh, while still working on the farm under the cover of Beam, but his voice has now changed into Evil Eros's voice. But Frank and Mabel, of course, don't notice. So he builds the communication communication device, he contacts the leader and, and informs him of the defeat and says that the real threat is not Solaranite, it's actually how stupid humans are. And so the leader, though, doesn't agree, so he demotes Eros, says that he needs to return for punishment, so that Eros destroys the device and says, forget it, I'll have to do it by myself, I must stop humanity by myself. Uh, that's when Frank comes in, and what is all of this? And so, of course, Eros starts monologuing and reveals his entire evil plan, that what he's going to do is he's going to turn humanity's greatest hero, which somehow is Jeff Trent into their greatest villain, which will then throw the world into chaos, which will allow us to steal the elements to make a modified Solaranite, which will only destroy the sunlight molecules here on Earth, which will plunge the Earth into darkness, causing the humans to destroy themselves. Ha 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 ha. But first, I need to capture Frank and Mabel somehow, brainwashes them to be slaves, then goes after Jeff. First he captures Paula, and then he captures Jeff. And then, kind of like in, in your story, the four of them become humanity's greatest villain, which in this case means they knock over a newspaper stand, they turn off a traffic light, and they break one window. And then newspapers <laughs> come out, and the world decries, Jeff Trent, world's greatest villain, and blah, 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 blah. And everybody hates for them. So then that's when they start 
doing this kind of like Ocean's Eleven style plan, but of course in a plan nine sort of a way to go after the Solaronite. And as they're kind of progressing, like they finally get all the way to getting the Solaronite when Jeff breaks free. I didn't have this one fully fleshed out, but it would be something where Eros would ask Jeff to do something that he would never do that's beyond his moral capacity. And that's what makes him break his programming. And so uh, then they end up like fist fighting or whatever, throws Eros into... I don't know, a vat of solar a night, something like that. And then he has a very climactic ah, death sort of sequence. And then the world yet again embraces Jeff as a hero. The final solution. The final solution. <laughs> oh boy, this is going to be rough. Adam, where does your vote fall? Well, like I say, I mean, Michael's was very well fleshed out, gave us a lot to chew on and, uh, some good action. It feels like, you know, what, what uh, the modern day 21st century version of Independence Day would be. But I have to say that the idea of Eros working on a farm and really getting into uh, Jeff oh, Trent. No. Oh, how could you turn him evil like that? <laughs> got I got to see it. I got a few ideas of my own. So I got to vote for Grave Robbers from Outer Space 2, the final solution. All right, Jeff, where does your vote fall? Uh, I really liked trying to envision taking this movie seriously like what what would it look like to really do it as like you you, you were painting out but it's so that's what's interesting is that you're going in that direction and then adam you're going in the more comic direction which obviously was the one that i was saying so like they're two different movies so uh, come back come back to me come back to me i gotta this is a first all right Michael, where does your vote fall? Wow, yeah. So, like, I wrote the pitch that I could write. Like, I, there's no way, like, I just don't have the comedy chops to, uh, to come up with <laughs> the guys did. But I love it. I love the comedy angles of it. Like, and it's really hard to pick between the two of them. But I don't know. Can we combine the two? Because, like, can we have Genghis Contour in with, like, uh, Eros on the farm? Like, I, I want both of those things in my movie. It may go that way, depending on how the votes all come together. And we apologize that you have no serious pitch to vote on michael <laughs> you <have> two ridiculous <laughs> pitches gun to my head I, i'll go with uh eros on the farm i guess all right jeff all right well <laughs> so at this point so it's up to you and me jeremy right i know we could collude and make this a tie i feel like that's your mo my friend is that, that usually <laughs> is. when in doubt we go for a mishmash and and so I'll, I'll I'll go along with that. I feel like I can see how this can go in both of those directions. All right, I will agree. Let's mash these up. Michael, your pitch was good. I just want to see the comedy hijinks here that they're going to have to <laughs> do in order to weave these together, much like the original movie and Bella Lugosi's part in it. They had to mash it together to somehow make it work. So first of all, the title, I think this has to be Grave Robbers from Outer Space versus Genghis Khan. Like, is that going to be the name <laughs> of the film? I like that. I like that. Although the reality is, though, did yours have Grave Robbers? Well, they robbed the graves on their home planet this time. Oh, that's true. That's true. Okay. For me, it was kind of the fact that there aren't any grave robbers. It made it It made it made work. So, I mean, we could also go in a completely different direction. Or we just call it Space Harvest, and because there's some farming, <laughs> then you just call it Space Harvest. <clears throat> Makes about as much sense. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, the one concession I think we should make in this case, though, and, and I don't know, like, I, I feel like we let Michael have a modern day version of this film. Okay, so like when we think about it, it's like instead of maybe reanimating Bella Lugosi, we're reanimating Tor Johnson in a digital form. But yeah, so I, Jeff, I feel like your your general story is the better story plot wise as far as like picking up threads and okay you know he's he's lost his memory and now he's working on a farm he's taken in by a kindly couple you know all that stuff is <laughs> is what you would expect so how does genghis khan find his way into this and i say that instead of reanimating genghis khan that you have Eros on the farm and he's doing some sort of, he's like digging a ditch or something and he finds Genghis Khan's tomb. And then, you know, somehow there's like a bolt of lightning and that is what brings back Genghis Khan. Just like totally unrelated to an alien invasion or anything like that. And so he's just, he's in the mix and he's wandering in the background, but he's not colluding with anybody. You know, he's not like a weapon on anybody's side. There's just a zombie Genghis Genghis Khan, who wanders throughout the film. What do you think about that? Well, I wonder, could we combine turning their greatest hero into their greatest villain? Could we use Genghis Khan as the greatest villain? Would that be the change of pace, then, is that you have Jeff Trent is the villain, and Genghis Khan is redeemed from history? <laughs> we could. I was thinking, like, what if he turns Jeff Trent into Genghis Khan? Could he transform <laughs> him somehow? And it's like, you, of all the things! Maybe it would be like King Tut on the 66 Batman series, as he gets bonked <laughs> on the head and he thinks he's Genghis Khan, and that he just starts wearing the outfit, and he just okay. goes from there. Okay. As long as I really want to protect Jeff's uh, litany of crimes is, like, the one broken window. <laughs> well, that's what I feel like. If he thinks he's Genghis Khan, like, yes, he's infamous murderer throughout, you know, his many conquerings, but I feel like he doesn't have a sophisticated sense of mayhem. Yeah. So, yeah, it really would be, you know, it'd be like stealing people's chicken wings or I don't know. I mean, if we go with the Bill and Ted thing, he's going to get into some mischief at some sporting goods store. You know, right. he likes Twinkies. <laughs> but Jeff, what you were saying, though, is the ultimate plan when they turn their greatest hero to their greatest villain. Does that just bring down the morale of the United States and make them ripe for conquering? Was that the basic idea? Well, it was, at least my initial thought was that it was a twofold chaos, where it was the first chaos of the greatest villain was going to freak everyone out so he could steal the Solaranite, which then that was going to create the chaos, which was going to make him kill each other. So it was like chaos upon chaos. I see. We need a role for Officer Kelton in all of this. Right. I mean, he has to somehow be our hero. Kelton has to come and, and save the day. So what I'm trying to figure out is, is it as easy as just bonking Jeff Trent on the head? <laughs> and then he, he's awoken and they are able to go combat? Because like you said, we had Eros regaining his memory as well. Like maybe they get bonked by the same board in a barn. <laughs> You know, or same bale of hay hits them mm -hmm. both at the same time, and then they switch back, and then from there, Jeff and Kelton are doing what they can to stop Eros, but I, I feel like there needs to be, like, instead of him falling in a vat of solar night or whatever it was going to be, it needs to be much simpler, and almost, my thought was like, you kind of want to get the, the supreme ruler back in there, because he was so great, I just want to have him come down and, like, shame Eros or something, <laughs> literally like, you come home now type of thing like you've caused enough trouble leave it at that just because they ran out of money
money or whatever, something along those lines. Or what if we're making Jeff Trent think he's Genghis Khan, and that's what makes him such a villain? What if we end it like they end the shadow, where he's in the insane asylum saying, I am Genghis Khan! I am the ruler of... <laughs> so we could make Eros think he's Genghis Khan. But then, I don't know where that gets us. No, but that'd be awesome, right? Is that, like, for no reason whatsoever, <laughs> Eros gets bonked on the head, and he th- any, anybody who gets amnesia thinks they're Genghis <laughs> Khan in this universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. All right. So now here's the question we have to ask ourselves. We have our basic plot, but this is now a modern day film. So which of our terrible directors in the modern day are we nominating to direct this film? Jeremy, come on. Let's bring him in. Josh Trank. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Does he do camp enough? Oh, yes, he does. I saw Fantastic uh, Four. Uh, <laughs> Yui Bowl. Uva, I think, is how you officially how you pronounce his first name. But we say Yui over here. Yui Bowl! A lot of bad video game-based movies. He seems like he would have a misunderstanding, just in general, of, of how life works. You know, the, the next is Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you have in mind, Michael? Uh, it's Shyamalan, man. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> See, he would want to make your movie, Michael. That's the problem. Right, right, but, he, right. but he would end up making your movie. <laughs> That's true. Maybe? What, what, the Happening, right? That was basically oh, his plan nine. Yeah, true. <laughs> no, it was Airbender was his plan nine. Uh, He's got a couple. He's got a couple of plan nines. Had a bad run there. Bad run. True. Although it is kind of interesting because it's like, yeah, it's that thing if you get a bad director – to direct a bad movie. I'm not sure you get a bad movie. I think you just get it. It's almost like, like, what if we got Tim Burton? Like, don't you think Tim Burton could do it well? Where it would be like, this is bad. Like, good on you. Like, you nailed Possibly. I, I was thinking somebody, like, who would even be more self-aware, like Seth Rogen. Like, get him in there. He would just take it and run with it and enjoy it. And he'd probably make it a little raunchier, obviously. But I but I feel like he would be someone who's like, oh, okay, I get what this is. Or, you know, James Franco loves terrible movies. Did the disaster artist, you know, he was so involved in that. Just give him a directorial credit on this. See what he comes up with. Yeah, I feel like with someone like Seth Rogen, the problem is, is it's done with a wink. And I feel like that spoils some of it, where hmm. it's kind of like... You yeah. want a sincere director. Yeah, that's what makes it so funny, is that you you either really tried and failed, or you really tried to do this, like, honestly. I, I don't know. It's this really weird thing, because, again, then it's just like, well, you're wanting a bad director then. <laughs> well, the, or it's just somebody with no comedic chops whatsoever... That you just say, well, this is totally not your type of movie, but if you want to make Bernie Goes to the Fair, then you need to direct Ray Roberts from Outer Space versus Genghis Khan. That's the trade-off with the studio. It's like, we just need somebody to get this done, so it's out by this date, so we don't lose our option on it. Or, you know, he's been in the news lately attacking Marvel films and everything else. Oh, he's got his no. movie out. I mean, what would Martin Scorsese do with a sci-fi film? Uh, That's like, he'd be so out of his element, he couldn't, I mean, he'd probably try to put gangsters in it, but it wouldn't work. <laughs> so that would just be even better. Be like, so instead of thinking he's Genghis Khan, he would think he's Al Capone. And you're like, wait, what? That's, uh, yo, you're off base. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, who I would land on in the middle of it all is Joe Dante. 
just like because he would add the humor to it he would understand what he's doing but i also think that he would have a reverence for plan nine to where he would like you know what we are gonna make it sincere and ridiculous you know at the same time i feel like he he could probably accomplish that does he still direct he needs to bring it back He has lamented the fact that he does not get to direct oh, anymore. Really? No. He only directs, like, Masters of Horror. I think he got to do a few of those. I never thought we'd be so deep into the director that's necessary to achieve <laughs> such a film. Such a terrible movie. Oh, terrible movie. Michael, I think we'll leave it in your hands. Of all the directors we've brought up, what do you think? Wow, wow. There's some, there's some pretty horrible ones in there. I, um... <laughs> I mean, pressure's only a little on. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hate to pick my own choice, but, like, Shyamalan has the whole writer-director-producer angle okay. going for him, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like... So if somebody could get in his ear and tell him, like, this is it. Like, yeah. if you could do this, you're achieving something. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I feel like somehow they sell him on your script, but then, <laughs> the, the, uh, like, the studio delivers this. Oh, so he yeah, has to go with it. He's contractually obligated. Try to rewrite it on set. Okay, so now here's the the next question as far as casting, at least for the major roles. Now for Kelton, this it just immediately I have to say in my mind when I went on the marathon of Ed Wood, all I could think of watching Kelton is I'm like he really, really, really. Well, really, it could go either way with casting, but I'm a big fan of MTV's The State. He could just as easily be uh, Thomas Lennon or Joe Latrulio. Like, they they both equally look like him. So one of them in that role, and I know Thomas Lennon does mainly writing more so these days. So maybe Joe Latrulio, fresh <laughs> Joe off Latrulio. Brooklyn Nine-Nine yeah, as Kelton. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, so I think that'd be a good tie-in. He's been playing a cop, you know, so people go along with that. Um, And then my suggestion for Jeff Trent, I feel like because he's the most milk toast man in hollywood in any role he's in it's like oh he's in this but i don't know that it matters <laughs> and that is patrick wilson as <laughs> jeff trent and seeing him play genghis khan would just be fantastic i don't know he's he's he's, he's not quite wooden enough i feel i bet disagreeing with patrick wilson but what do you think about aaron taylor johnson oh okay Fresh from Godzilla. What's he done lately? Uh, yeah, Godzilla and and uh, Quicksilver. Um, that was that was his last high profile. Yeah, work. yeah. You you talking about milk toast actors and I, that guy's the definition <laughs> of <like> generic. <laughs> And I, I, th- I think you're right, because he's probably more on the level of the type of actors we want in this. We don't, we don't want anybody with too big a resume. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm fine with that, Aaron Taylor Johnson. Okay, what about for Eros now? Who are we thinking? So we don't want this to be intentional comedy right like are we what's the word well that was Shyamalan at the helm now now he thinks so I feel I oh Paul Giamatti he's gotta be Paul Giamatti for Eros come (laughs) on that's brilliant (laughs) see I don't oh like for me Paul Giamatti's rhino in Spider-Man was just painful I didn't even find it funny it was just like just cringy. But wasn't he also John Adams or something? But he was yeah. brilliant as John Adams. That's what I'm saying. So he has cred on both sides. <laughs> He's been it's... terrible and awesome. Yeah, but I want terrible in a great way, where you're like, you got to deliver that stupid, stupid people. Like, you got to deliver that line 
not as a psychopath. I don't know. I don't. I I need to. I mean, he did. He had some good moments in uh, in Sideways. He is a he is a shouter that he does yeah. that well. Yeah, that's what I'm and saying. I feel was, I feel like his meltdowns that would be the memes that everybody would latch on to after this film is Paul Giamatti as Eros. What about Travolta? Oh, no. Wow. Because he's back on the downside of his career now. Yeah, he Like, is. he coasted for 20 years <laughs> off of Pulp Fiction, <laughs> and he's hit the bottom again, you know? He did his gaudy movie, and everybody's like, huh? Plus, tying into Battlefield Earth, right? He's done it before. Bad space movies. You're right, because it'd be interesting to see him in there. I don't think as Eros, but... Just find a role for Travolta. Right. He could be right. an army general or a, a, a detective... I'm still on the Giamatti train, but uh, as another name I'll throw in is uh, Nicolas Cage. Just Saudi nah. actors. Oh, oh. oh, how does he not come up more? I just feel like Nicolas Cage's last 20 years, every movie he's made is equal to Plan 9. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like he's he's already achieved that. So it, it would give us that credibility to begin with, if you want to call it that. It's like, <laughs> well, oh, it's but, a Cage Yeah, but is that really what we want? Or do we want this to be... Like, you know, the movie that people you know thought was going to be good is actually really horrible. Well, I'll tell you this much. The trailer is going to have no Genghis Khan in it. <laughs> like, it's just going to be in shadow. It's going to be, you know, you won't have seen any of it. And actually, I think there does have to be a twist ending with Shyamalan at the end. You know, Genghis Khan never really existed. Like, I don't know. You know, I could say there's a little Genghis Khan in all of us. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's like we're all Genghis Khan. And you see, it's kind of like the end of V for Vendetta. Everybody's dressed as Genghis Khan. <laughs> <laughs> they all just heard a town square. <laughs> That's how you work Tor Johnson in his Genghis wow. Khan, too. Sounds fine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got studio approval from Jeff, and uh, that's good. Well... Michael, thank you so much for bringing this up. What a wild roller coaster and a fun discussion we've had here. You're very welcome. So tell us, Michael, where can people find you on this internet? Oh my goodness. Let's also do the Twitter at uh, Michael May Comics with an X, and uh, I tend to tweet about the various podcasts that I do there. Helmet for Letterbox is one of them, the Western podcast I do with Pax and Holly, and uh, Fourth Year Army Invasion on the Nerd Lunch feed, where Adam and I have done some stuff together. Yeah, it's actually been super fun. If you want to go back and hear us talk with William Bruce West all about Rambo, yes. check it out. But I'll also plug for you, too. So Michael has an awesome collected work of comic books from Dark Horse Comics called Kill All Monsters. If you like sci-fi, if you like adventure in a fun vein, go out and find it. And remember, perhaps on your way home, someone will pass you in the dark and you will never know it. For they will be from the Sequel Quest podcast. Michael, why don't you just... Or actually, Jeremy, did you have a synopsis you wanted to give us, or should we just leave it alone? Uh, no, I think okay. we've touched enough on the synopsis. <laughs> what would be the point? What we've discussed point? more of the plot than any of the synopses <laughs> that the I've movie. come across. So. The movie itself. Uh, it's very All true. We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com or SQPod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network. <laughs>